Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Bhutang tamang sankhang namasami The, uh, the theme for the Sunday talk today is uh, Choose Life, Choose Inconvenience, which uh, struck me as a very interesting title. Um, the, uh, uh, the system that we go by every year, I invite the members of the Sangha to suggest topics and they give me a long list. And so I look through them and uh, pick out uh, 12 or 13 for the Sunday afternoons during the, uh, the rains retreat. This one struck me, that, oh, that's an interesting way of putting things. Um, it's also the, uh, the, the term choose life that uh, reminded me of a, um, a, a, a well-known statement at the beginning of a, a series of stories about heroin addicts in Edinburgh called Train Spotting. Some of you may be completely unfamiliar with this, but it starts off by saying... Uh, choose life and then goes through a long list of you know, choosing to have a job, have uh, paying a mortgage, um, watching game shows on television and so on and so forth as if that was life. And then the, the, the narrator of the story says, uh, I chose not to choose life. Uh, and what, for what reason? Uh, there are no reasons. Who needs reasons when you've got heroin? So I thought, I'm not advertising heroin addiction as a, as a way to transcend suffering, but it, uh, it in a way, epitomized that um, the, uh, um, the way that the mind can, uh, can frame things and that, uh, that we, we see that the only way towards happiness, if there's, the mind is, is governed by ignorance, the only way we can find happiness or satisfaction is to completely drug the mind or, or completely distract the mind uh, from reality. So the Buddha's teaching is in completely the opposite direction. <laughs> uh, to, uh, uh, to choose life, not through choosing um, to blot things out through, uh, through chemical means or, uh, or to just switch off or to, to not feel, but rather to turn towards the reality of life, towards nature, towards the, the way things are. And um, and the second part of the title, choosing inconvenience, uh, I'll, I'll go into in uh, in due course. So, so oftentimes, when we meet with difficulties in life, um, we uh, feel like I don't want to bother. This is too much hassle. Uh, I've I've had enough of this, and we want to escape into you know, watching television or, or you know, uh, distracting ourselves with with food or with sleep or with. Uh, you know, holidays, entertainments, shopping, uh, various different things to, to occupy the mind. Um, but uh, as uh, uh, the kind of people who would gather for a Sunday afternoon to listen to a Dhamma talk would, uh, would be probably well aware that uh, those kind of things, they might uh, bring a momentary relief, but they don't uh, go any way to resolving our, our problems, our issues in life. And that... Uh, the um, the urge to to switch off or to say oh, yeah I can't be bothered or it's too much hassle 
in a way that's heading towards what we call vibhava tanha, the desire to not feel, to not be, to not to not experience, to to switch off, and so um, that. Uh, we might call that non-attachment, or we might call that uh, letting go, but uh, in its essence, that sense of you know, I can't be bothered, I'm not interested. Um, someone else can 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 do that. It's a an aversion. It's a pushing away. It's a, a, a nihilism within us. So that uh, most of us would like comfort and convenience. <laughs> That uh, we find satisfaction in life through having things go the way that we like. We want to have a secure enough living situation, enough money, enough uh, social stability, so that we can things can be convenient and we can get what we like, and then we feel uh, we feel comfortable and, and happy. But um, why should it be that uh, proposed that uh, to choose life is to choose inconvenience? Or <laughs> Why, why would we think that those two things might come together? Uh, so that in that uh, in that respect, the um, the approach uh, that we have in in Buddha Dhamma and particularly emphasised in the the Thai forest tradition is that um, it, uh, and this was something that Lumpur Cha would often emphasise, saying if things are too comfortable, we just fall asleep. We become complacent. We switch off. Uh, if, it, if things are too easy, too comfortable, too convenient, then we we uh, become uh, say uh, indolent. We we uh, we uh, get complacent. We get lazy because things are comfortable. You know, why why would I have to do anything about my mind? Because you know, life is fine already. So um, he uh, uh, he would always be um, arranging things at, at Wat Vapong and the branch monasteries. So that um, there was a certain degree of discomfort or inconvenience, and any of you who visited Wat Vapong, um, I think it's still very much the same now as it was in the the 1970s when I lived there. That uh, it, it's a it's quite a bleak place. It's not set up for for convenience or comfort. <laughs> so just a, a, just an ordinary day at Wat Vapong was quite challenging. The uh, the living conditions were uh, we each had a kuti we had a shelter, but the, your furnishings in the kuti was a thin grass mat and a and a pillow. That's it. <laughs> that that's your furniture. Um, you might have a mosquito net if you're lucky. Yeah, that's a good thing. Lumpochar was very proud of the fact that Wapapong had the worst food in the world, and that uh, and if the the people who are preparing the food started to make it a bit too tasty, a bit too varied, a bit too fancy, then he would. Go in and, and uh, give a, a, a give some feedback to the kitchen. Like saying that you're making this too nice. <laughs> it's a, the, the the monks are beginning to get excited when it's the meal time. So we need to simplify and uh, you know, make things a, a a little a little less interesting. So uh, that that might seem a bit um, uh, crazy <laughs> or a, a kind of counter to our ordinary human disposition, our ordinary human feelings. But uh, Lumpur Cha was a, a very, very observant teacher and also a very uh, faithful disciple of the Buddha. And he could see, well, that's the way it works, is that if things are too comfortable, too convenient, too easy, um, particularly in the sort of middle part of our life, if we don't have too many illnesses or too many disabilities or uh, such like, we can just run on automatic. We can, we can get... Uh, uh, say, Complacent, we can take things for granted. We can assume that there's always going to be a food supply. We're always going to be able to see. We're going to be able to hear. We're going to be able to walk around and do the things that we like to do. Uh, of course, 
and and he saw that uh, com- being comfortable is is nice, <laughs> is pleasant, but just because it's pleasant then doesn't mean to say that it's useful. And so that uh, he would arrange uh, life at Wapapong. So there was a certain degree of inconvenience, a certain degree of difficulty. Um, so when we would uh, go out on the arms round, again, those of you who've spent time in the northeast would know that the, uh, the roads in those days were often paved uh, with this red earth and these pebbles. And on the arms round, you always go barefoot. And so that um, you would have a, 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 a very um, impactful effect on your feet as you're going on, on the arms round. You find yourself trying to find the smoothest patch of <laughs> of mud or a, 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 a plain area where the stones weren't jagging into your feet, and so then sometimes people say, "Oh, Lumpur, why, why don't we um, sort of make an effort to, to smooth out uh, to smooth out the roads?" And so then it's all kind of perfectly even underfoot, and so then so Lumpur would say something along the lines of, "Oh, so that you can just let your mind wander while you're on arms round." <laughs> You can just uh, yeah, fa- uh, fantasize um, and uh, let your mind drift. He said, no, it's, that's the way the roads are. And if you're on, a, on the arms round on that particular kind of road, then that's, uh, that's the way it is. And you, and you use that, uh, the, the discomfort that's coming through your feet to remind you to be awake, be aware. So you're not looking for ways to torture yourself, but using the circumstances of, of living simply and then working with the environment as you find it as something to learn from. So the the principle he would often talk about, um, and uh, uh, and the um, uh, it's really uh, encapsulated. It's there in the very first teaching of the Lord Buddha in the the Dhamma Chakapavatana Sutta, the, the discourse on the turning of the the wheel of Dhamma, where he pointed out the the two extremes are self on on, on one uh, self indulgence, trying to find happiness through maximizing pleasure. And then the other extreme of self-torture, trying to uh, achieve happiness or freedom through, uh, through uh, frustrating the senses, through self-mortification, through what they call atakila matanu yogo in the Pali language. Indulgence in pleasure is karma sukali kanu yogo. And so the, the, the middle way is what the, the Lord Buddha taught. And then uh, the, the middle way is the, the way of understanding the realm of feeling, understanding, perception. And, uh, and then when he goes into speaking about the Four Noble Truths, then uh, it's uh, very significant. And again, uh, Lumpur Sumato would emphasize this point many, many times, saying that we, we get beyond suffering not by uh, suppressing it or escaping from it, but by turning towards it and understanding it. And so that uh, the first Noble Truth is there is Dukkha. You might, sometimes people think, well, why didn't the Buddha say the first noble truth is nibbana, is peace, is liberation? <laughs> you know, why, why pay attention to, to dukkha, to dissatisfaction? And uh, the, the reasoning uh, in, this, uh, in this way is because if we don't bring attention to dukkha, to those feelings of dissatisfaction, if we just try to avoid them, or, or we, we wallow in them, we kind of take hold of that dukkha and say, oh, poor me, I'm having so much pain, so much difficulty. Uh, you know, why is life so, so, uh, so bad to me? That's uh, so like wallowing in dukkha or pushing it away, distracting ourselves from dukkha by filling our mind with other pleasant experiences or suppressing that dukkha. Uh, both of those extremes 
don't bring a real liberation from dukkha, uh, but it's bringing the attention, idang dukhang. This is dukkha, this is the experience of dissatisfaction. Now where does this come from? So that consciously turning towards the feeling of dissatisfaction towards dukkha and looking, so, okay, now where does this come from? What is this? That, I say, bringing attention to it, not to amplify it or make it stronger, but to understand it. And then through that understanding, then we're able to free the heart from the limitations of those, those painful feelings. So Lumpur Chao used to compare it to catching a snake, again, in the northeast of Thailand in those days, <laughs> catching snakes and removing them from your, from your kuti, from your hut, or from the, the uh, meditation hall and such like. It was quite a common, a common thing. And growing up in northeast Thai villages, it was a very natural example for Lumpur Chao to, to, uh, to take. So he said, if you, if you pick up a snake in an incorrect way, if you, if you take hold of the head, it'll bite you straight away. That's like grasping dukkha. Wallowing in dukkha is uh, just reaching for the head of the snake, bites you straight away. So you're, something is painful, is difficult, and then we go to the poor me, ow, that really hurts, life is unfair. So that's the taking, uh, reaching for the head and getting bitten by dukkha straight away. If we grasp at happiness or, or, or um, comfort and, and uh, say, uh, evading dissatisfaction, he said it's like taking hold of the tail of the snake. It doesn't hurt at, at, at once, <laughs> but if you pick up a, a snake by its tail, very quickly it, it reaches around and it'll bite you. So he said if you grasp happiness and comfort and convenience, then it's quite pleasant at first. It's, you know, it's just like the tail of a snake. There's no teeth there, but it'll whip around and bite you. So the way to, to, to handle a snake skillfully is to take a forked stick, uh, a stick with a, with a little fork at the end, and approach the snake very carefully and attentively. <laughs> and then, uh, without trying to hurt the snake at all, you bring the stick up from behind the, the snake's uh, head, and then you plant the, the forked stick just behind the head. Then you reach forward and you pick up, from, reaching from behind, <laughs> not from the teeth front side, but the, the, uh, uh, the back of the head, you pick it up, by, uh, by that, that same area, the, the neck of the snake, and then you put it into a sack, carry it off to the edge of the forest and, and let it go. So that's kind of approaching the, the sharp end of the snake, the, the toothy end, <laughs> approaching the, the dukkha end, but with care and mindfulness and with the appropriate tools, then you can, uh, you can handle that situation without yourself being hurt, without the snake being hurt, everyone is okay. So I was, from hearing that many, many years ago, when I was a, a, a novice uh, there in Thailand, I thought, that's a, that's a pretty, brilliant. I'd never had to catch a snake myself. <laughs> um, but I thought that's a really brilliant example because that's what uh, we're, we're doing with the discomforts and inconveniences and the difficulties of life. We're approaching them mindfully and carefully uh, with the right tools uh, of, of wise reflection and mindfulness. And then by picking up the, the, the snake, the, the, the painful feelings in the, in the appropriate way, then we can, uh, say, uh, uh, let go of that, the, the, the causes and conditions that have brought that uncomfortable situation or that, that tricky situation about. We can uh, carry the snake to the edge of the forest and let it go. So I'm not sure if that uh, many, many of us who've grown up here in England haven't done a lot of snake catching. <laughs> 
but uh, hopefully that, that serves as a good example. So that when we are dealing with our life, with conflicts in the family, with uh, our physical illnesses, with, with economic difficulties in the current uh, society, uh, the, the condition of the society, uh, many people are suffering a lot with basic amenities and, and uh, providing for the family. Though wherever the, the feeling of dukkha might be, whether it's in our health or in society or in the family, the workplace, um, then to approach that place of difficulty uh, with that same kind of mindfulness and care and to, to explore. Well, there is this feeling of dukkha. Where is it coming from? And uh, how, how to work with this, how to understand it, and how to let go of the causes. So uh, that the, the principle of of, uh, of life then, uh, and uh, why that would be associated with this quality of inconvenience or difficulty, it, what it's doing is saying that if we really want to resolve the difficulties of our life, then we need to wake up, <laughs> a and then b approach those difficulties, not run away from them, not evade them, uh, or not indulge in them but to, to wake up and to, to go and meet that, those difficulties. Hence, uh, the readiness to, uh, to uh, uh, work with inconvenient, things being inconvenient, uncomfortable, and challenging. When, uh, when the Buddha spoke about, um, uh, say, the, uh, the, this principle in the Dhammapada, Many of us are familiar with a, a verse Lumpur Sumedha used to quote very often in the early days of Amravati, uh, because of Amravati meaning the deathless realm. Verse number 21 of the Dhammapada is, uh, Mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful never die. The heedless are as if dead already. So the uh, uh, that's the encouragement to to wake up to, if you want to experience deathlessness if you want to transcend uh, death then wake up um, and the uh, that um, that principle of uh, of say wakefulness and uh, uh, being uh, alert to the the present this is the you know the the key that's why inconvenience can be very useful to us because it helps us to wake up, like walking on the, <laughs> walking on the stones, uh, on the arms round, or, or actually uh, this chair. This chair is not so convenient. When this was offered, I thought, what's a beautiful thing? It's a lovely chair. It's a, from Rajasthan, one of the, I think the, the father of one of the lay supporters here, maybe she's here today, brought this back from India when he was posted there in the early part of the 20th century. It was a kind of family treasure. So she I said, can I donate this to the monastery because it's a, you know, it's, a, it's a fine thing. And I said, oh, yes. S sitting in it, it's not particularly uh, uh, as, as easy or as comfortable in ordinary chairs. But I thought, well, this is a lovely thing. We should make use of it. <laughs> it's, uh, some, some craftsperson spent you know, hours and hours and hours inlaying all the, the, the metal work into the wood. What a, a beautiful thing. Yeah, we should, uh, it's uh, been offered to us. We should make use of it. And so that... Um, they, uh, uh, sometimes what is inconvenient uh, then helps us to, to pay uh, a closer attention, helps us to, to wake up. So I have to be careful I don't slide out of it. <laughs> and uh, to uh, say, well, why don't you just use, choose a, a chair that's, that 
that uh, you won't slide out of, that's more comfortable, that's easier to be with. Say, well, because this is a gift, it's something that was, it's uh, beautiful, it was a family heirloom, so um, uh, we can respect that gift, that generosity, and the, the history of this coming from Rajasthan and India and making its journey all the way over here to England, now living in this Buddhist temple and being part of the, the uh, amenities here. So when we choose inconvenience, when we are, say, uh, aiming to live simply, uh, living uh, in a, with the conditions that life presents to us, it, again, it doesn't mean that we're trying to torture ourselves, but uh, the, the principal qualities that living with inconvenience, difficulty uh, uh, bring with it is that we need to be patient and we need to be unselfish. So I feel that the, the society, uh, the, the sort of drift towards things being more convenient, more comfortable, more uh, easy, means we don't have to wait. We never have to be patient. And, and things can be set up for our, our own uh, satisfaction, our own pleasure. And that seems to be the, the most important thing for many, many people. It's like me feeling comfortable, me feeling happy, me being gratified moment to moment. I, I remember many, many years ago there was an... I don't want to malign anybody who works for American Express, but there was an American Express credit card advert, and the slogan was, take the waiting out of wanting. Good, it's a, a neat slogan. <laughs> take the waiting out of wanting. You can, you can want something and get it immediately. You don't have to wait. But I feel this is a, that is a, a kind of going quite counter to the, the, uh, the, the wisdom of the Buddha's teaching that says... Um, the uh, the opposite, and in 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 so far as it says, um, patient endurance is the supreme practice, and that it's through patient endurance, the development of the paramita kanti, that is what uh, most directly and completely liberates the heart, and so uh, that quality of patience, being ready to go the inconvenient way, if you're trying to come onto a, a, a road and you just allow the, the traffic to go past. You don't just cut out of the side road and just barge in front of a, an oncoming car, but you let the others go by. You wait. And then you, when there's a gap, then you can pull out onto the main road. The people who are driving by appreciate, oh, that person, they're waiting patiently. I, I don't have to look out for, to make space for them. Um, just simple things like the etiquette on the road. Or um, if you are looking for a, 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 a parking space in a, in a car park, multi-story car park, and you can see there's a, a space up ahead, just waving another car ahead of you to go and take the space and you'll go and find another one. You're going to make that person's day. Like, wow, look at that. They let me have the space. What an extraordinary thing. How kind, how generous. <laughs> so... Being patient, uh, patient endurance, is the supreme practice for burning up uh, unskillful karma. And uh, in the forest tradition, this is it's kind of the, the sort of national motto of the of the Watpa, the, the, the forest monasteries of Thailand, Kwam Oton in the Thai language, endurance. So when people would go to Lumpur Chan and say, oh, Lumpur, my mind is really crazy, I've got these terrible defilements, and Lumpur would say, Oton Daimai. Can you endure? 
the Olympo, I really want to go and, and uh, visit this other monastery. I, you know, I'm, I'm really keen to go off, uh, go off traveling and, and uh, walk to this other monastery. But uh, uh, you know, it's a well. Uh, this isn't the right season. This isn't a good time. Uh, you can go next year. You know, can you can you endure? Olumpo, uh, I've got this terrible illness, this infection in my leg. I, I came limping around. I can't, I can't walk properly. Can you endure? So uh, we're not, uh, again, trying deliberately to make uh, problems for ourselves, but learning to develop patience. Because what, we, uh, what we're doing with, with our life, and when things are easy and convenient and comfortable, we'll uh, uh, say, when we meet with, with dukkha or difficulty, we'll find a way around it. We don't look at that uh, that aspect of what is my mind doing with this? Okay, I've got an injured foot, or I've got a. Uh, I'd like to go travelling, but what am I doing with that feeling of I want to go somewhere, or I want this to heal, or uh, I don't want to be bothered with this? Can we turn the attention round and look at how is my mind handling this particular situation? This difficult member of the family, this difficult situation in the workplace. Uh, not just looking at, oh, that person's difficult, how can I get away from them? <laughs> but what is my mind doing with this argument? What is, what is my mind doing with this illness or this debt or this conflict in the family? And that what patient endurance is doing, that this uh, Kanti Paramita is, uh, is doing, it's not just, uh, patience isn't just uh, in the Buddhist respect, it's not just gritting your teeth and sort of pushing through and just out of sheer determination. But rather, it's a practice of profound letting go. Uh, in, in Buddhist psychology, patience is not a state of waiting. You're not waiting for something painful to be over, but rather you're opening the heart to exactly this condition. Here it is, in this moment. I prefer not to have this illness or this injury, this conflict, but here it is. In this moment, it's exactly like this. So the, the way to freedom uh, and the way patience is used is opening the heart to a difficult experience and not arguing against it, not, not resenting, not creating negativity, but uh, say that, that sense of, well, this is painful, it's uncomfortable, but I don't have to make a problem out of it. It doesn't mean that we're, we don't take medicine or we don't do exercise to try and re heal ourselves or we don't work to try and pay off the debt. But in that moment, we are not looking as the problem uh, essentially being out there, but the problem is the, how the mind handles it. So that uh, when we choose inconvenience or choose uh, to, to say stay with a difficult situation, a difficult relationship, a, a, an illness and such like, then the, uh, the result is that we're far more able to work harmoniously and effectively with that illness, that argument, that, that, uh, that debt or that, that difficulty, whatever it might be. The, uh, many years ago, I was at a uh, teach some teachings by His Holiness the Dalai Lama in Los Angeles. It was a big uh, auditorium, I think, in Pasadena, and um, so, you know, several thousand people gathered there. And he had been giving teachings for several days, and um, uh, and uh, there was time for people to ask questions, you know, open and open things up for for dialogue and questions, and. Uh, and one of the, of the people there asked, you know, Your Holiness, what is the quickest way to enlightenment? And uh, so he started giving a, a kind of um, uh, uh, sort of technical response. 
and sort of quoting various great acharyas of the ancient past, Ashvagosha and Vasubandhu. And, and then he kind of stopped in mid-sentence and he put his head in his hands and he was crying. He just started weeping. And he kind of stopped himself in mid-sentence and said, no, no, no this is totally wrong. This, to even ask that question is completely missing the point. I, I, can't, I can't carry on giving you an answer in those terms because it's just so against Buddha Dharma. We shouldn't be thinking what's the quickest, what's the easiest, what's the most convenient. Uh, we should instead be thinking however long it takes, okay. <laughs> uh, whatever, whatever I have to give for this, okay. Uh, not just be thinking in terms of uh, how fast can I get what I want. Uh, it was very touching. There were several thousand people in this big auditorium. And, you know, there's the Dalai Lama crying in front of you. <laughs> and uh, he, he, he was really, he really felt it. That uh, He meant that very seriously. That um, that, uh, that was such a wrong attitude, it kind of broke his heart. To So uh, that was very touching, very impactful. And uh, I felt it was... Yeah, very much in accord with the the, the forest tradition teachings. Uh, similarly, the um, the quality of unselfishness, and that uh, that um, uh, when we go the way of convenience or comfort or, or um, you know the seeking what is is pleasant or good for me, then we we are say. Uh, drawn by that urge to, 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 to follow the, well, me first, or I got mine, or I want to make sure I'm okay, or I've got what, I got what I like. And uh, Lumpur Chah would talk about this. He said, you know, and in those days, in northeast Thailand, an apple was a very, very rare thing. It was a kind of precious. I mean, we would think maybe of a, a ripe mango being very special in this country. But in, in northeast Thailand, in the 1970s, an apple was like a kind of strange, mysterious, precious thing. And Lumpur Chah would use the example of that. If you've got two apples, and there's one that's, you know, that's really you know, ripe and crisp, and, and it looks like it's going to be really delicious, and you've got one that's a bit sort of small and green, um, and then yeah, your, your, your friend is there, then which apple will you offer to your friend? <laughs> He said, if we are thinking of Duoton, of ourselves, then you'll offer the small green one to your friend and you'll keep the, the, you know, the, the, the big crispy red one for yourself. He said, it takes a, uh, it's painful to say, here, you have, the, you have the nice one. I'll just take the little green one. He said, it's painful, it's difficult. Um, uh, but then if you, then if you pass through that, that, like the, the, those curtains, if you kind of make it through that painful patch and then you actually give the, the, the better one to share with your friend, then how does that feel? It feels really good, doesn't it? <laughs> so, so this is the challenge um, with selfishness is to recognize like, yes, there is that, yeah, me first. Uh, there is that impulse that we very easily experience as natural and, and ordinary for us. Yes, that's there. But we don't have to be dominated by that. We can pass through that, like, like walking through the curtains. And then, and then if we share what we've got, we, give, we offer what is most precious to us, we, we are ready to, to give that away, then the feeling in the heart after that's been shared is so nice. Whereas the feeling in the heart after we've kept the, the good stuff for me is like, eh, like I've got the good stuff, but uh, I don't feel so happy about myself. 
So uh, Lumpo Chao was a very practical teacher. He said, look, look, look at how it works. This is, this is the, the dynamic of it. And so that um, in terms of, of choosing inconvenience, then choosing unselfishness, choosing patience. And you know, all of us in our lives, whether, uh, whether we are living in the monastery, whether we're in the workplace, we're working in a school or a bank or a hospital or an embassy, uh, uh, whatever our, our place of work is or our family situation, um, uh, whether it's uh, living with our elders, with our, with our children, our grandchildren, you know, uh, fellow uh, community members, we always have opportunities to practice patience and we always have the opportunity to practice unselfishness. So these are, are also to be used with wisdom, not kind of craziness, so that you're, you're starving yourself <laughs> by giving everything away, or you're, you're kind of freezing because you, you haven't got any warm clothing because you've given it all away. You, you do need to be practicing these things with, with wisdom. But I do feel, particularly with, with respect to patience, that this is something that's not, not really understood very clearly. That, uh, as I said, often when we think, I'm practicing patience, it's like we're using strength to grit our teeth and wait for this painful thing to be over. But uh, the, the, uh, the quality of patience as a paramita, a kanti paramita, we don't really have a, a word in English that quite matches that. Because to genuinely practice uh, patience, which is a paramita, it's a, it's a brightness of the heart. It's to do with how we handle painful feelings or things that are uncomfortable, difficult. But uh, true patience is not waiting. You're not waiting for something painful to be over. Genuine patience, the patience that's the paramita that carries the heart across to liberation, is a letting go of time. You're not saying, oh, well, soon this will be over and then everything will be okay. Or then I'll be comfortable. This will be, this will be done and then I, then I can. But no, genuine patience is, is in a, uh, opening the heart to the timeless quality of Dhamma. It's the opening the heart to that akaliko Dhamma, the, the timelessness. There is no future. <laughs> that in this moment, it's just this. And so then, uh, even if it's something uncomfortable physically or emotionally or socially, then we find, oh, it's just, it's just this painful feeling, that's all. It's just this awkward situation, that's all. So in this respect, uh, t again, to do with patience, I like to encourage people, and what I, I, I call a very, very refined practice, which is called mindfulness of awkward feeling. So when you're in a dialogue with someone, or you're dealing with something in the workplace or in the family, like this, the, oh dear, what am I going to do with this feeling? Like, oh, that, that person's upset, or I just said something that was, that was uh, unhelpful, or or um, yeah, they're looking irritated, or they want to get away. Uh, it's an awkward feeling. So rather than trying to fix that or, or um, cover it over, in that moment, we can turn the attention inwards and, and recognize this is an awkward feeling. <laughs> That's what this is. It's just, this is the, oh dear, I wanted to avoid this, but it's just happened feeling. That's what this is. And mysterious, and I use this practice a lot myself. You know, I'm living in a, a large community, lots of encounters and dialogues, um, engagements with people, that it's a kind of a, a marvelous practice. It, it takes a bit of mindfulness to remember to apply it, but 
Uh, I used to be very uh, aversive to difficult situations. I wanted to fix things or get away or cover things over, make everything all right. But um, to develop patience in this way and openness of heart, say, to, to say, just recognize, well, this is an awkward situation. It doesn't mean that you're switching off or that you don't care. You're still paying attention to what's going on, but you're recognizing, oh, this is, this is the kind of thing I was trying to avoid, and here it is. Aha, this is what it feels like. And mysteriously, when you open your heart to that as an experience, as an emotional tone, then you find yourself much more able to work with the situation in a harmonious and balanced way. So, uh, it, also in the forest tradition, uh, in, in Thailand, we, uh, we also call the Dutanga tradition. And Dutanga is uh, a, uh, a word in uh, Thai language, it's, it's uh, translate, trans, transliterated to Tudong. And uh, the Dutanga practices were the 13 different kinds of ascetic practice that the Buddha allowed for his monastic community uh, in order to make things a bit more inconvenient. <laughs> A bit more difficult, so that he was uh, he discouraged self mortification like self torture like standing on one leg for forty years or or holding one, your arm up in the air or uh, hanging from a branch from a tree by your, your hand or something these kind of ascetic practices that are still uh, carried out in, in India and other places, so the Buddha discouraged um, those kind of self torture practices, but he did allow a certain number of of ways of challenging it, kind of raising the, the, the level of challenge. So the forest tradition, the meditation tradition in Thailand, they emphasize these Dutanga practices, and so that's part of our, our way of life, uh, is deliberately making things less convenient, less comfortable, um, and it's particularly to, to challenge four areas of our life, and I, I'm not going to suggest as lay, lay people you adopt all of these or any of these but you, I, I thought to looking at the title for today's talk I'd, I'd address these because there's ways that we can in, uh, introduce the same kind of spirit into our daily life, the workplace and into our, our, our lives. So that the four areas that, that the Dutanga practices challenge are food, sleep, personal space and physical comfort. So these are all what they call reptile brain uh, uh, areas of our life, instinctual, non-conceptual uh, areas of our life where we are, we are very attached to, the, to, to food. We need to eat, we get hungry, we, the, we need to provide for the body. We need to sleep, we need to rest uh, uh, and uh, refresh the body through sleep. Uh, we we uh, like to have shelter. We need shelter. We need uh, and we like our personal space, a place where we can have our own things and set things up the way that, that we like. And we like physical comfort. We we want to make things sort of uh, you know, nice and pleasant and to stay the right temperature that uh, is pleasing for us and, and such like. So the Dutanga practices address those those four areas quite deliberately, uh, and so that uh, not to go into too much detail. But they are things like, um, for monastics, only eating the food that is put into your bowl on the arms round in the morning, not accepting any food that's, that's brought to the monastery, or eating all of your food together in one bowl, 
or eating all of the food for the day at one sitting, not accepting any food that's given later on, but just, yeah, so uh, all of the food for the day is in one bowl, and that's what you eat, and then that's uh, all that's consumed for that day. So uh, those, if you put those limitations in place, then you begin to notice how, <laughs> how uh, instinctual your re reactions can be. So, for example, when I was a novice, I was extremely keen. I was 21 years old. I was very ardent, very keen. I'm like, yeah, I want to do it. I want to really make, uh, make a good job of this monastic life. This is the Dutanga tradition. Yeah, me too. So uh, I asked, and if you're a junior person, you have to ask permission of the teacher to take on any of these Dutangas. So I asked the, the, the Ajahn if I could, uh, this was after Ajahn Sumedho had moved to London, so the, the abbot of Wat Nanachat was Ajahn Pabakro, who was a, also an American monk been a helicopter pilot in the Vietnam War in the American Army. Uh, so anyway, I asked him permission, you know, can I just, for the, for the pansa, for the rains retreat, can I just uh, live on whatever alms food uh, I get in my bowl on the, on the bindabata, on the alms around through the village, and just not accept anything else that is given in the, in the monastery. So he gave me permission for that. And so that, uh, you know, 21 years old and a sort of vigorous lad, and so... Uh, keen to have a, a, a belly full of food each day, but it was kind of really interesting um, how uh, that that dutanga made you acutely aware of food <laughs> and the hunger of the body. And uh, as a novice, I was walking at the back of the line of the of the, the monks going through the village. And even though I was at the back of the line of monks, and you could see sort of three or four villagers lined up with their, their little rice baskets or their plates with things on, uh, I just, uh, the, so the, the things on the plates would be things like uh, a banana or sweet corn, some green beans, such like things that, um, that uh, the, um, the late uh, uh, King uh, Bumipon Aduyadate had developed many, many programs for people growing vegetables in the, and uh, distributing seeds and training people in market gardening in the, in the remote regions of the country. So they grew things like sweet corn and green beans and, and pumpkins and such like. So seeing a few, uh, you know, one or two people kneeling down by their houses with a plate, oh, there's some, some stuff I might get there other than just the rice. That looks promising. And even at about sort of 25 or 30 yards, you could count the number of bananas on a plate. And at least in my memory, that like you could... And, you know, are there, and uh, I'm, I'm the, the fifth one in line. Yeah, are there four bananas or five? And how acute your vision gets because they're like, uh, you know, I want some for me. And so the, the purpose of a dutanga like that is to, to say, recognize how when we're, we're driven by those uh, uh, instinctual passions, then that becomes the most important thing in the world. The world has shrunk to that plate <laughs> in, in that, held by that villager. You know, that's, that's the only thing that's interesting in the universe. But then there's the, the wisdom mind that says, isn't that amazing? Just because you're hungry, that becomes the most important thing in the world. And if there are five bananas on the plate, that's a good thing. And if there's only four, that's bad. Look at that. Look what the mind makes of a simple situation like that. So then, because you're doing this kind of practice reflectively and you're using it as a wisdom training and a spiritual practice, then the purpose of it is, oh, look at that. Look at what my mind is doing with that. Aha! You know, how it, it, it gives us this, this value. Uh, and so, um, 
uh, again, I, I leave it to, to you as individuals how you might say work with your your uh, the the food that you that you take or the the kind of way that you run your diet or or limitations you might choose to put upon food or how many times you eat during a day. It's entirely your own business, but. Uh, uh, if we establish those kind of standards or principles, it's quite amazing. As soon as you say, okay, um, I'll have one day a week with no sweets, how, how the mind starts to maneuver, like, well, it's not really that sweet. You know, it's <laughs> it doesn't really count as a sweet. It's, a, it's just, it's sweetish. Therefore, it's okay. So, you know, I'll have that. So, and the purpose of doing it again is not just uh, as if there's some kind of inherent good karma about uh, about these things, but to get to look at the mind, see how the mind maneuvers and manipulates and tries to to get get what it wants, so that we can understand those impulses. So I, I kept the practice. Uh, so, with with, with a limitation on sleep, um, the um, one of the dutangas is to choose not to lie down. So that you only use three postures, sitting, standing and walking, you don't lie down at all. And so uh, you, you learn to sleep, uh, sitting up or leaning against a wall. So I kept that practice for about three and a half years. And um, you, you discover after a short period of time there is no comfortable posture. <laughs> Even sitting in a really comfortable chair, it, still things ache and uh, you're... Uh, uh, you learn how to to find enough rest and and to deal with with tiredness. Again, you're not trying to do it to to just the idea of creating good karma or to to torture yourself, but learning about those instinctual impulses. To I just want to switch off. I just want to stop feeling. I just want to check out. Or I just I'd really like to just relax everything. And to say, well, no, this period of time that's not available. <laughs> So what, what it does is, uh, I mean, that was many, many years ago that I, I took on that practice. It was uh, two years up at Harnam Monastery in the first year, year and a half I was here at Amravati. From, so from August of 83 to uh, uh, December of 87, uh, and, uh, 80, 86, uh, I think, then uh, I, I kept that practice. Anyway. So it was uh, it was very yeah, revealing, and um, and I developed a, a, a lot of of uh, ability to sleep in any posture. <laughs> so so uh, it's kind of a handy skill to have that I learned how to just lean against the wall and just switch off for five minutes and uh, and uh, go into a restful state. So uh, again, I don't recommend. I'm not saying everyone should take that on or. Uh, would necessarily be beneficial, but just limiting the amount of sleep that you take at night, uh, just to to put a, a, a boundary there and see what the effect is. With um, uh, the dutangas about personal space, uh, the the uh, l uh, practice of living under a tree, camping out, so that we would just uh, uh, go on these uh, long walks through the countryside, just you know, hang up a, a mosquito net. And uh, have a mat and just live under the trees. And, and sometimes the Wabapong Lumpur Lumpucha would say, "Okay, um, it's the it's the cold season. People are huddling away inside your kutis, all wrapped up in blankets. Okay, everyone, move out of your kutis for the next two weeks. We're going to just uh, live on the forest floor, and uh, we'll use that for a, a, a two-week retreat period." Um, 
so you're not taking refuge in the in the the, uh, the comfort of your kuti, but you're learning to to deal with the living in the elements. So uh, uh, I mention these kind of practices, and I really do leave it up to individuals how to apply them. But the these areas of physical comfort, personal space, uh, food, and sleep—they are all things that we have very deeply rooted instinctual. Uh, relationships to and when we're not when we can't get comfortable when we uh, we haven't got enough sleep or we, we haven't we uh, we're hungry or we haven't got the food that we like how much dukkha the mind can create like i need to have my bed i can't sleep if it's not my bed <laughs> i need to have this food not that not that food i've got to have it uh, i've got to have you know, my space should be like this so what we're doing with these kind of dutanga practices you're deliberately using inconvenience to develop a tremendous adaptability in your heart. So if it's the food you like or the food that you don't like, okay. If it's your, if it's your bed or another, another bed, okay. <laughs> if it's a, a, a nice sheltered enclosed uh, spot to, to, to make your own, okay. If it's a, a, a more you know, open or vulnerable situation, okay. You, know, you are ready to, to work with a large variety of, of different experiences. So we develop a, a robustness and adaptability of the heart. So that's the purpose of these kind of practices. So that we use inconvenience and discomfort and uh, that such things to develop those kinds of strengths, the ability to, to live with uh, different circumstances. So, and it's particularly useful when we, get, when we get older and we have aches and pains and can't get away from them. When we are physically dependent upon others, we can't walk on our own. We have to have a, a, another, an arm to lean on. Like you know, Lumpur Sumato, his his legs are quite poor. His his balance is not good because his his feet are quite numb. So you'll notice when whenever you see Lumpur Sumato, he's leaning on the arm of Ajahn, usually Ajahn Asoko. Even a walking stick isn't enough because he can easily lose his balance. He's a a big person. So Lumpur Sumato, if he's going for a walk. <laughs> He needs another another person to lean on, literally. So, because he's trained himself very well over the years, he doesn't resent that or begrudge that. Oh, I want to be doing this by myself. Just leave me alone. I can I can do this. He uh, instead of trying to sustain the independence that he had when he was more um, physically able, instead he goes, okay, if I want to go for a walk, Ajahn Asoko, are you free? <laughs> And just goes with a, with a companion because that's what he needs to do. His eyesight is quite poor, so if someone's more than two meters away, he can't recognize you. They say, uh, good to see you, Lumpur. He say, who's that? <laughs> and then again, one of us will say, oh, it, uh, it's this person or that person, because he can't, he can't see. But uh, that the, the value of consciously using inconvenience, discomfort, and so on and so forth, is that when those abilities go, because of aging or illness or different situations, then our heart is ready. You don't take it as a loss. It's like you know, being around Lumpur Sumedho is an incredibly good uh, say, uh, uh, teaching because he doesn't put out any kind of feeling of, of resentment or like, oh, I'm so, it's so annoying, I can't see well, or I can't hear well, or I can't move by myself. It's just, okay, I need an arm to lean on, okay. <laughs> it's not, he doesn't uh, feel diminished or, or, uh, or that it's, it's a loss or even a difficulty. It's just, okay, 
this is the conditions as I find them, this is, uh, this is how we work with it. So these kind of um, uh, conscious working with, with uh, inconveniences, difficulties and, and challenges, they develop this extraordinary uh, adaptability within us. We don't uh, rely upon being able to see or hear or even think straight. <laughs> We, uh, because uh, we are, we're not taking refuge in those capacities or com- those, those qualities of comfort, but we're taking refuge in the heart itself, that, that which uh, knows. And then on the, the practical, physical level, we're ready to uh, to adapt. So you can you can look up the Dutangas. Uh, if you want to know all the details, you can look them up on Wikipedia. <laughs> Thirteen Dutanga practices, and then just to as an intellectual exercise, you can think: Well, how can I possibly apply these kind of things in my life? Well, you might recognise the very well. I've actually got like four of those already, Ajahn, just because of my medical conditions and my my age and <laughs> my my lack of hearing and my my, my dodgy eyesight. So I've got a few Dutangas already. Well, fine, but it's the consciously using those as a spiritual training rather than resenting the fact that you, sh- you used to be able to see well but now you can't or you used to be able to to um, climb stairs and now you can't uh, but say uh, okay well how can I learn from this how can I not add any suffering to this how can I live with this set of conditions and learn from it rather than begrudging the fact well when I was young I could I, I used to be able to <laughs> so uh, and maybe the last thing to talk about um, uh, again, looking at the title of this, the, the theme for this talk, Choose Life, Choose Inconvenience. Um, a number of years ago, the former uh, Vice President of the United States, Al Gore, wrote a book called An Inconvenient Truth, which was about climate change. Yet, I think he wrote it about 20 years ago. And at the time, people thought, what's this politician doing writing about the environment? I mean, what is, that's not really that big of an issue. <laughs> but it was quite a prophetic book because the way that things have been developing with the climate, with the, the um, raising temperatures, the increasing carbon dioxide levels, and the, the general awareness of the ecological difficulties of the planet, it was very prescient, as they say. He was very, he was very much ahead of the curve. And he called, I thought it was a very skillfully named book, An Inconvenient Truth, is that we are running out of resources. The planet is getting warmer. The, uh, the ice caps are, are melting. Things are, resources are diminishing. The, uh, the variety of animal species, plant species are diminishing. It's an inconvenient truth. <laughs> we would prefer there to be an infinite amount of resources, infinite, uh, say, amount of, uh, of food and, uh, say, space for everyone to, to live their, their chosen life and to, to have to... Uh, say, provide their their wishes for them. But uh, it's an inconvenient truth that we are going to have to give some things up to, to live in a more, uh, a way that is more eco-friendly, a way that is less selfish. Um, so uh, the, uh, the, the way we've been redeveloping the site here at Amravati is to trying to put up eco-friendly buildings heated by air source heat pumps, trying to get off fossil fuels altogether, um, and to, uh, to lower the carbon footprint that, that we make uh, in the world. Um, it's more expensive, <laughs> it's inconvenient to a certain extent, but 
the, the long-term results are very, very beneficial for our community and the, the expense of, of, of uh, running the, the site drops a great deal um, because of not using fossil fuels. Um, so that, um, I feel, is a, an important thing to bear in mind that if we are, uh, you know, choose life, choose inconvenience, choose to uh, give up single-use single plastics. You know, and even now the, the government I just saw in the, in the news is banning uh, plastic cutlery, like throwaway cutlery and uh, the, the kind of um, materials used for fa fast food and, and uh, such like that um, plastic shopping bags uh, in uh, Ireland, they, they banned sort of a national ban on plastic uh, shopping bags for, for supermarkets and people have to use uh, reusable uh, bags and so on and so forth. So it's inconvenient. <laughs> But it's, a, it's part of choosing life, that if we don't undertake these practices that are more eco-friendly, that are, are, are less selfish, then um, it won't just be uh, the choosing life psychologically, like choosing to be awake, choosing to, to uh, be on that path to the deathless. It won't just be a, a psychological choosing life, it's also a physiological choosing life that if we don't change our habits as a human society, then you know, life on this planet is going to get you know, very, very difficult very, very quickly, I would say, just looking at the, the, the uh, reports of the various different scientists and, uh, and uh, the uh, reliable information that you get from, from various research bodies that uh, it's inconvenient, we have to reduce our consumption, we have to, to get off uh, fossil fuels and to, to lower our... Our, foot, our, foot, our carbon footprint on the world, it's inconvenient, but it's also what helps to lead to our physical lives and our own well-being being supported, being, say, enabled to flourish into the, into the future. So I felt that it was a... Whoever came up with... Amongst the Sangha who came up with that title of Choose Life, Choose Inconvenience, I thought, well, it's an inspired... An inspired choice because, it, in a way, it's uh, that's uh, what we we face, and it's only inconvenient to our ego most of the time, <laughs> to our heart. Like sharing the apple, you know, giving away the good apple, uh, offering that up. That uh, it's it's inconvenient to our ego, to our self, uh, uh, our self concern, but it's beneficial for the whole. That's why, as Lumpur Shah would say, when you when you give away. The, the, the one that uh, is most precious, then the, the ego goes, oh, I don't want to. But the heart goes, yes, because it, it rejoices in that. So I offer these thoughts for consideration this afternoon. And please uh, do uh, take some refreshment. There should be some tea available in the cloister. And then we can gather back in about 20 minutes for some questions and some dialogue. So I'd like to open things up for some questions. There's a microphone there. I would ask uh, people can uh, use that. Also, I should mention that um, uh, at the moment I'm helping to lead an online retreat. So the, the 75 retreatants that have been watching and listening to this over a live stream. So it's not uh, broadcast to the public, but there's another 75 people on the other side of that camera who are also joining with us at this moment. So. They are not physically present, but they're psychologically, psychologically present. So uh, that is a, um, 
uh, a unique feature of what we can uh, what we can provide in these times. So, any questions people have, don't be shy. This is opportunity to uh, ask. If you could use the microphone, that would be very helpful. If you slide the switch up to the top. So, yes, my question is, where do you find yourself on this side of self-mortification? And when are you on just being inconvenient and challenging yourself? And where is that fine line <laughs> uh, of knowing when you're stepped over to the one side of self-mortification and gone too far? Uh, well, that, good question. Um, that's where mindfulness comes in. And, and also the input from your spiritual companions, your spiritual teachers, so, because we can't always tell for ourselves exactly what the, the middle way is. Um, but uh, you, you please do sit down if you like. Yeah. <laughs> Though we, we can't always tell what the middle way is. And so um, we might with great... Um, zeal and interest, like when uh, one of the, um, uh, the the monks with Ajahn Sumedha, when Wat Pa Nanachat, the International Forest Monastery, first opened up and Ajahn Sumedha was going to lead his first rains retreat there, then one of the junior monks, um, after uh, uh, the Ajahn had said, so anyone who wants to carry out any of the Dutanga practices, they should ask permission from myself before they undertake everything. And then this other, this junior monk who was there said, yeah, I would like to, Ajahn. And he said, well, well, which ones? And he said, well, all of them, yeah, all 13. He said, no, 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 no. He, he'd been a Marine in, the, in Vietnam, that one. So, <laughs> so I want to do all of them. And so the Ajahn said, no, 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 no. Just uh, go ramp it down a bit. That, uh, you're, you're enthusiastic, but that's not practical. And also it's the rainy season, so that you have to live inside a kuti. You can't live under the trees in the rainy season. So he persuaded him down to two or three of the, of the ones. Uh, a few of them were standard for, for Wat Pa Pong, Ajahn Chah's monastery, like uh, eating all of your food in the bowl together. That was a standard. Uh, and eating one meal a day and not accepting food later on. That was the standard, and I believe is still the standard at Wat Pa Pong. So some of them were kind of um, de rigueur, but uh, the, this uh, particular monk was sort of saying, I want to do the whole thing. <laughs> so our spiritual companions uh, and then our teachers, also our own wisdom, if you undertake something and you realize, well, I thought this was a good idea, but yeah, this is really causing some damage, or I'm not handling this very skillfully. Uh, I'm getting, uh, say, I'm creating more um, uh, more hassles out of the out of the limitations, and uh, I'm creating more suffering. I'm not uh, uh, so using this in a way that helps the mind to transcend suffering. I'm just multiplying it. So either I need to do it differently, or I need to get some advice how to to work that. Because uh, Dhamma is a relational practice. We, we practice in, in connection with other people. So that you, uh, almost always one has got some friends or like-minded people that you can draw upon and say, this is what I've been experiencing. Uh, this feels a bit out of balance. Uh, so what, what advice can you give me? Or your friends will come up to you and say, are you all right? <laughs> like, uh, 
uh, when I was doing the, the, what they call the sitter's practice, not lying down to sleep, when we had a, a winter retreat time here at Amravati, I used to never use a zafu. I would always just sit flat on the, on the mat. I thought cushions were for wimps, you know. And so, uh, and so what, this uh, a young um, Anagarika came up to me with a zafu and said, can I offer you this, this cushion, Ajahn? And I said, I, I don't need one. And she said, I think you do. Because <laughs> she was getting fed up of watching me falling asleep during the meditation. So, <laughs> so I was, I was, uh, I've swallowed my pride and, uh, and accepted the zafu to sit on. So, it's not easy to tell for ourselves, but our companions can help us. So, any other questions, thoughts, please do. Uh, don't be shy. If you slide the switch up to the top, yeah. I was really interested in what you were saying about, um, I guess, staying in the discomfort of conflict. Um, and I'm finding that really hard. <laughs> and feeling like, well, it's got to be the right thing to try and fix this. Um, and... Yeah, I would just love to hear more about how we can navigate that when, you know, when there is a, a conflict with a dear friend and it sort of feels like the, the instinct to make everything better um, <laughs> will be better for everyone, but it turns out doesn't seem to be that way. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, that, uh, as I was saying, that's somewhat home territory for me. I, I was, uh, I've always been very conflict-aversive, so uh, that sense of, I've got to fix this, make everyone happy, make everything all right. And, and uh, so the result was I, I worried a lot. And I would just, uh, as you were describing, and I was mentioning earlier, how you trying to, the impulse would be to fix things or try to smooth things over. But um, very often uh, trying to fix things, that the tryingness and the meanness trying to fix it-ness, uh, <laughs> would just complicate matters and make things more more difficult and uh, um, uh, the uh, the the kind of um, principle that uh, I found that was very very helpful was uh, uh, there's a line in the the verses of the third Chan patriarch, the Sin Sin Ming, the verses on the faith mind. Towards the end, it's it's a sutra that was written in China um, by Master Seng San, sort of in the 6th or 7th century. And uh, towards the end of the, the sutra, he says... To, to, to be in the one way, to, like, to have the mind attuned to reality, is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. And I'd read that many, many times. I'd heard it said and, and, and read it many times, but it, so at a certain point it jumped off the page. And it was at a time when Ajahn Sumedha was teaching a lot about mindfulness of emotion. And, and it just suddenly I kind of saw it in a whole different way, an extra dimension. Yeah, I'm always anxious about non-perfection. Yes. <laughs> but if some things aren't quite right or they're imbalanced, uh, there's this reaction to try and fix it, make it right. And so to, to be without anxiety about non-perfection, to, to see something that's out of order, out of balance, that's awkward, and then to, to not um, 
to not fix it, but just to know, oh, this is what's happening in this moment. Then the, the, what happens is that there is a, a, an attunement to the situation on a, on a more profound level, and then you're, you, so you're coming at it responsively rather than reactively. That makes sense. So to react means you, there's an impulse, and you, and you just say something or do something, and there's, there's no space around it. It's like a conditioned, um, uh, unreflective. Uh, reaction to respond means taking it in, letting there be some space around it, and letting some uh, words or actions or or, or 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 not doing something arise from that that spaciousness. So uh, as I started to apply that, I found that was uh, extraordinarily helpful. So then that developed into this sort of conscious practice of mindfulness of awkward feeling, and. Uh, um, the, uh, so it, it's not just you're not just sort of freezing yourself. Uh, again, in that same verse, uh, the 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 Sinsin Ming, the verses on the faith mind. He says, if you try to stop activity to achieve passivity, your very effort fills you with activity. So so it's not you're not freezing yourself or trying to say, don't do anything, don't don't just 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 be, just watch. It's not that kind of pushing away or freezing but rather just letting there be some more space, more psychological space around that awkward feeling. As I was saying in the talk, that sense of, oh, this is exactly what I didn't want to happen and it's just happened. Aha, that's what this feeling is. So you care, you're involved, but you're not just trying to push it away or explain something or just fix it, but rather there's an attunement. And then out of that then, if there's something to say, then you can say it. If there's like nothing to say, then you can keep quiet. Um, it, it takes quite a lot of mindfulness and also a lot of mindfulness of the body because often at times that reactivity, that lure, is, is almost like a physical reaction. It's like a reflex sort of jerk uh, of the system. And so that um, along with mindfulness of the dialogue or the situation and what your thoughts are doing with it, also what your body is like... <laughs> tensing up in some situation of conflict there's a heated discussion going on in the room or uh, so mindfulness of the body and then so, so relaxing the body in the in the midst of the situation and then relaxing the attitude and then and seeing and then the last part is then when you do that when you when there's a responding to the situation like that looking at the result and then over and over again, it's like, wow, well, that was much better. <laughs> or oh, that, was, that was helpful. So there's this feedback that is, is not conceptual. It's like you see, oh, well, that's actually helped the communication work more completely. And that, oh, that's helped to resolve that, that conflict. That shifted the, the energy of the exchange. Aha, look at that. So you let the, the good results of responding rather than reacting be what in, informs you. So it makes it easier to keep learning to do that and, and doing that into the future. The, uh, it, it's often we take passivity, like that sense of, of uh, uh, trying to be non, uh, unattached or, or um, to be practicing emptiness or, or, yeah, or non-grasping. And that can be, uh, say, with a good intention, 
But actually what we're doing inside is we're pushing things away. It's a, what they call vibhavatanna, that desire, I've, I'm out of here, I'm not, I'm not, getting, in, I'm not getting involved. Like, and it's, it's that uh, nihilism or vibhavatanna, that pushing away. So it's not really non-attachment, it's, uh, it's attaching to pushing away. <laughs> uh, so it, it uh, again, the quality of mindfulness of seeing that, I don't want to deal with this feeling. To say, okay, that's that's the I don't want, I don't want to deal with this feeling. Okay, there there that is, and uh, so I, I use that practice this uh, a lot in my daily life. So I hope that's helpful. So any other questions, thoughts, clarifications? If you switch, push the switch towards the top. Hello, hello. That's it, yes. Thank you, Ayan. Um, could you tell, could you say a bit more about when you offer the mature, tasty apple <laughs> and the person say, oh, I'm not sure, and then, and then you go, oh, but then you feel like there's an investment in that action. There's actually, you have an agenda now to, <laughs> to, to provide with the good apple. Or, or the apple is not taken and is left on the table there, and then you're wondering whether you have let go of it, um, but it's still there, it's going to go bad. <laughs> <laughs> All those kind of scenarios. Thank you. Yeah, good question. As I was saying, giving that as an example, I realized, well, there's, there could be quite a few dimensions to this. <laughs> so uh, the, the best thing is to have no agenda. That, that's the... To, uh, if you offer the other person the, the the good apple, the nice apple, and they say, "Oh no, no, thanks, that's fine," you know, uh, you you have it. They say, "Okay," <laughs> that uh, just responding to the situation as your intuition guides, and uh, so sometimes we can be overly self-sacrificial. If you understand that, that. Uh, Say you offer the the nice apple. Say no, no, no. You must have it. Say no, no. I insist you have it. And they're kind of you're going going back and forth, and you're you're getting caught into this um, trying to be unselfish, trying to be generous, trying to uh, give things away when you're, you're kind of attached to that as an idea. So, um, so say for example, uh, again using my own life. Um, so. Uh, in that, that same period when I wasn't lying down to sleep, I, I was very kind of rigorous ascetic. And um, I, was, uh, I, I never wanted anything kind of nice for myself. And in that era, we used to all have the meal together in the old sala, uh, all the nuns and monks and uh, you know, the lay people. There was a small enough community we'd all eat there. And so Ajahn Sumedha would sit in the middle. And uh, so uh, at that, that time... Um, I was, think was, I was the second monk, uh, uh, the third monk. There was another senior monk there. And so um, uh, this particular day, Ajahn Sumedho had been offered a, a really kind of uh, elaborate Danish pastry with, with jam and creme patissiere and this kind of glis glistening with uh, frosting and such like. And so he put it in, the, in the, his bowl lid and passed it to me. Uh, and I immediately passed it on to the next monk and then uh, Lumpur said no I want you to have it 
And there was this thought in my mind, but, 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 you, know, but you know I never, I never have nice things. And he kind of gave me this look. Like, yeah. I, I want you to have it. And so I realized this is a teaching <laughs> where I was kind of automatically giving good things away because that was kind of a, an identity that I had. And uh, the, the, Ajahn Sumedha wanted to know, can he let go of his asceticism? Can he let go of his sort of need to always be giving things away? So um, I, I accepted the teaching and the Danish pastry. <laughs> and at the, uh, the, what was the turning point for that, that, at that end of that, uh, that, that year, sort of the end of 1986, beginning of 87, um, I was doing so many ascetic practices. I was very, very I was super strict vegetarian. I never, wasn't lying down to sleep. I was doing all kinds of uh, extra um, uh, sort of austerities of one kind or another. And even though I was sort of going without, going without a lot of things, I felt like I was sort of overstuffed. All these th practices, these things I was carrying around, and I realized I'm doing all this stuff to let go, and I'm feeling like a kind of an overfed goose. That's kind of that's kind of crammed uh, and uh, overfed. So, uh, and just before the winter retreat of uh, beginning of 1987, and I was chatting with uh, with Lumpur Sumato, I said, I said, Lumpur, I've decided to give up all of my ascetic practices. And I thought he was going to say, uh, Oh well, never mind. You know, you've you've given it a good, yeah, a, a good go, and uh, you know, well, well done for all this this time you've been putting into your dutanga practices, and uh, but never mind, you know, it's probably time to have a rest. But he didn't say that at all. As soon as I said I've decided to give up all my, my ascetic practice, he said, "About time." <laughs> he was waiting for me to let go of all this special stuff that I felt I had to be doing to be a kind of good monk, and so. The renunciation I had to make was was uh, not letting go of food and sleep and such like, but my attachment to that. So um, the when we are giving things up or we're carrying out these sort of um, simplifications, then it's good to to look at the attitude that we have. Uh, you know, where where is it, where is it coming from in us? So, for example. Um, I, I lived in California for a long time and sometimes the, the very people who were most sort of ardently eco-friendly had the most anger in them and would be sort of uh, advocating um, getting, getting off fossil fuels, saving the redwood forests, you know, looking after the, the purity of the water and so on and so forth. But, um, so they have very good intentions but there would be so much rage in them, kind of angry with all the people who weren't protecting the, the, the trees or who weren't caring about the environment or who were, um, not, who were going against their ethic, that uh, it was this kind of strange chemistry where their, their, their dedication to peacefulness and harmlessness was over here, but their kind of uh, angry, violent, aggressive and uh, kind of critical mentality was, was uh, projected on, on others. Uh, who were not following their their ethics, their ideal, and uh, so the, I feel that the challenge is to look at your motivation. Okay, why is it I want to share this? Where's this coming from? What 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 agenda do I have? 
Uh, and uh, so, and what am I bringing into my life by adopting these particular standards or this simplification? Um, am I judging other people? Am I creating negativity towards other people that if they don't think the same way that I do? Where, where's this coming from? What, what does it bring with it? So this is where the wisdom faculty and, and uh, reflection is, uh, is a, a very, very important part of simplification and uh, say, wanting to live by a, a, a kind of a, a simpler and, uh, and more wholesome standard is uh, what, what's coming with that. Uh, another thing to share, um, many, many years ago, uh, I was uh, staying at Beedale's school. Um, this was in the early 80s. I went to go and stay at Beedale's school uh, on their invitation for, uh, for a period of a week, a couple of times. And my job was just to sit under a tree in the middle of the school and be available for whoever wanted to show up and have a chat. And the person who was hosting, uh, hosting me for those weeks was the... Um, they didn't have a religious studies teacher, but they had a... a uh, this, uh, this man, John Rogers, was the uh, sort of resident theologian. So he, he, co he covered the sort of spiritual side of things for the school. And he was telling me they had a very interesting practice in their family because he was quite, he'd studied under C.S. Lewis at Oxford University. He'd kind of studied theology and uh, so very high-minded, very kind of noble and uh, good-hearted family. And so they had this, this um, uh, principle, which uh, the, what they call the, the, the principle of the cakes. So they recognize they're all very generous, they're all very unselfish. So the principle of the cakes is that if you have a dish and you have two donuts, one's an orange donut and one is a lemon donut, and you really like lemon, you don't like orange, so then you assume that the other person likes lemon too, so you put them on the, cake, on the plate, and then in England you're supposed to take the thing that's nearest to you, that's the polite thing to do. So you're, you really like lemon, you don't like orange, but you're offering the lemon one to, your other, to the other friend. They don't like lemon, but they actually like orange. <laughs> So, uh, so you, uh, they end up taking the lemon one that they don't like, and you get the orange one that you don't like. So both of you end up with a cake that you don't like. So the principle of the cakes in the Rogers family was, like, I like lemon. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, yeah, if, uh, if, it's not too, if it's not too much, I like the lemon one. So you're speaking honestly about what you would really like. And so they would use that not just with cakes, but they would say, not just trying to please other people because they could see that that was a strong habit in the family. So if someone would say, um, do you want to go and play tennis? Would you like a game of tennis on the school tennis courts? Um, if you really do not want to play tennis, you say, on the principle of the cakes, no. <laughs> I don't want to play tennis. So that, because they could see they spent so much time doing things they didn't really want to do, just out of an obligation and trying to be nice and be... Uh, kind of wholesome and spiritual. So that can be a, a useful um, say, uh, standard to apply, the principle of the cakes, just to be able to say, you know, in all honesty, no, I don't want to play tennis, or uh, I prefer not you know, to do this or not to do that. So you won't find it on Wikipedia. It's, I think, strictly in the, in the Rogers family. Well, maybe they do. Maybe the Rogers family have put it on Wikipedia now. But uh, that, um, that was a, a, a lesson I, I learned from there more than 40 years ago now. So I hope that's helpful. So any more questions, thoughts? Yes, please. 
मी भनते आय हॅव टू क्वेश्चन्स सो माय फर्स्ट क्वेश्चन इज हाऊ समवन शूड गेट रीड ऑफ दर प्रोकॅस्टिनेशन ऑर आर ओन माइंड हू इज होल्डिंग अस टू डू समथिंग विच वी शूड रिअली बी डूईंग अँड माय सेकंड क्वेश्चन इज हाऊ डू यू ऑलवेज किप स्मायलिंग हाऊ डू यू ऑलवेज किप स्मायलिंग आय हॅव बीन यस इन फ्रायडे आय हॅव सीन यू येस्टडे आय एम सीन यू नाव आय एम ऑलवेज सीन यू स्मायलिंग हाऊ डू यू किप होल्ड ऑफ इट uh so first one was procrastination um well it it depends where that's coming from and uh, you know in your own um your own mind and so to i think to explore you know, what is it that keeps putting things off am i uh lazy <laughs> am i afraid of failing or being criticized um uh do i uh do, do i like the the feeling of being on the way to something but i don't like the feeling of arriving uh completing something you know, what's behind it so using the wise reflection to explore where's this coming from and uh also part of that is having procrastinated what's the result you get grief from your partner you get grief from people in the workplace you yeah, are saying okay though this is the result of procrastinating i have to make all these excuses uh i feel self critical uh i feel like i'm uh, i'm a failure uh i'm i'm not pleasing people that this is the result of it um so how does this feel uh, and again using that quality of wise reflection just to explore that um it, it can be uh complicated psychologically like that we we procrastinate and we keep failing to do things um maybe that's because we have a sense of identity around that that um again not to get sort of too much pocket psychology <laughs> but uh sometimes even a, a, an an identity that is uncomfortable or unpleasant we like that the the, the better the devil we know than the devil we don't know that um that that we might not think i like to think of myself as a person who's always disappointing to others right well if you spell it out it, well, no you wouldn't want that but if there's something that has identified with that that at least as a me who's failing other people <laughs> as a me who's letting other people down at least as a me here who's uh, and that uh, it's kind of, it sounds a bit weird but sometimes it's those those very kind of negative or what we would think of as unappealing aspects we we hang on to those uh, me who's always falling short me who's not good enough uh, me who's let people down it's like something is going yes that's what i am <laughs> uh, on the surface level it's like oh i wish i could please people or i wish i could be better but something uh, that that which loves defined being the bhavatanha that that better to be a, a a me who's a failure than than have no defined me at all so again it's a little bit into the area of of sort of pop psychology but uh, those can be the the kind of um things that drive that that um that uh that's who i am and uh, well in terms of the clinging it's not really who we are but it's like it's a uh, uh an an identity that the mind latches onto so that we keep creating situations like a few weeks ago i gave a talk about self sabotage 
and that uh, which is is called self-sabotage because you keep sort of obstructing your own best interests but in a way it's actually self-assertion you're kind of there's a me who's always getting it wrong <laughs> there's a me who's got something to hide there's a, a me who's letting people down yes <laughs> and it doesn't make sense rationally but uh, on, a, on a human level we do that a lot I would say as a human family so uh, I don't know if you were here for that talk on self-sabotage but it, it's I think it's posted online if you want to listen to it so um, in terms of, of procrastination uh, then it's the, the kind of thing that makes us do that repeatedly it's not rational it doesn't make sense rationally like well uh, on, a, on a rational level I, I you know, I'm disappointing myself I'm disappointing other people it's I'm not fulfilling my responsibilities so logically rationally doesn't make sense but often it's not a rational or logical thing that's driving it it's the non-rational non-logical you know, dimensions of, of our being so it's good to explore you know what, uh, to to investigate and look at uh, where that comes from um, also you can em employ the people around you your <laughs> family friends co-workers to say <laughs> that's got to be delivered in three days how are you doing like, eh. <laughs> and so that to actually get things done then you can draw upon your friends and companions and uh, spiritual support from, in that way to to work against that to to um, kind of uh, uh, not just look at the roots of it but also to counteract the practical effects of it just to, so it's not just up to you but drawing other people in to, to kind of please please uh, <laughs> get in my way and don't, don't let me make any excuses to uh, to get around this uh, if I give you excuses don't believe them you know <laughs> That kind of thing, just to to, to uh, try and tilt things in a, in a more uh, in a way that we're, we're doing more. Um, uh, see, uh, in the world that is actually fulfilling our promises, our obligations, or our, our undertakings. As to why I'm a smiley kind of a person, that's genetically disposed to smile a lot. Of yeah that's how it is <laughs> also you know I've been a monk for the last 45 years so that helps but, uh, the, um, but I, I, I always had the, the appearance of being a very sort of cheerful and easygoing and uh, as I said I was mentioning earlier how I was always very anxious and I remember when I was a student uh, I was at London University many years ago and um, and uh, I was chatting with a, a friend of mine, um, and uh, and uh, and I just mentioned um, that uh, you know, I was very I was very anxious, and she said, "You, but you're you're always so cheerful." And I said, "Oh, inside I'm just a kind of ball of nerves." And she said, "No, you're not." I said, "Yes, I am." <laughs> but the the impression that she had, I knew I knew her pretty well, and. Uh, the impression she had was I was always kind of you know, chirpy and bright, and but the the kind of 
uh, turbulent, anxious, f forever fretting kind of uh, character on the inside, I realize that other people can't see that. So, and I, I, Ajahn Sumedha made the same comment a few years later when after I'd become a monk and I was living at Chithurst. And uh, he said, uh, he made the comment, you know, you're always so confident. And I said, confident? I'm a ball of nerves. He said, really? I said, oh yes, Ajahn. <laughs> So it doesn't doesn't show on the outside. So, so I'm used to giving that impression to people. But, so I, I think um, it's also, uh, you know, I'm not joking. In 45 years as a monk, you know, it does have a very good effect. So, but, uh, I'm definitely not as anxious as I used to be. So that that has actually I, I would credit a lot of uh, Lumpur Sumato's instruction, his guidance about mindfulness of emotion, like in the late 80s, early 90s, that was incredibly helpful because I didn't have any kind of perspective on that at all for years and years, and that was extraordinarily helpful, both on the mental side and the, you know, developing um, a skillful attitude mentally, but also developing mindfulness of the body in relationship to emotions. And so... That uh, that really shifted around that time. So I, I certainly don't. I, I'm not a ball of nerves anymore. <laughs> but, uh, the, the inside is is more like the outside nowadays. But uh, also in terms of um, going back to your procrastination question, um, another aspect to that is, uh, is to use the sensations of the body when there is that recognition of, oh, I'm putting something off, I, you know, I'm doing it again, or like, uh, I, can't, I don't want to do that now. Just to take the attention off the thing that you're supposed to be doing that you haven't done yet, and then just bring attention into the body. How does this feel? That state being present. What's, what's the physical sensation of this? Is it hot? Is it cold? Is it tense? Is it heavy? Is it light? Is it numb? What is it? Where is it? So that you're taking that as an angle of approach to, to kind of get a bit of a different perspective on that because that was one of the most helpful things that Lumpur Sumedha was teaching in that era is that every emotion has some kind of somatic dimension as a physical sensation that goes along with every emotion. And if you take your attention off the emotion like love or hate or jealousy or fear or and the thing that you're afraid of, or jealous of, or irritated by, or the, and you bring turn you turn the attention around 180 degrees and say, okay, well this is this is uh, anger, uh, but wh where is it? How does it feel? This is fear, you know, letting go of the thing that you're afraid of, and say, look, what does fear feel like? What does procrastination feel like? You know, what does this sense of obligation feel like? And so it's, it takes a bit of mindfulness to literally kind of unhook from the object that you're supposed to be doing in this case and then bring it back to, to the physical feeling. But it can be very, um, very revealing uh, and liberating to say, oh, this is the, the feeling of fear or, or um, this is the, that sense of, of aversion or putting something off. Um, it, it feels like this. And so then you, you're, by bringing awareness to that physical sensation of it, then the mind is able to get more of a, a perspective on it. The, the, the physical sensation is much, much more simple than the mental complications around particular issues. So I hope that's helpful. So it's just before uh, 
four o'clock now, so let's uh, draw things to a close. And uh, I wish you all well. And uh, whatever has been useful today, please take that with you. Whatever is not useful, then please leave it behind. Anyone? Hey, well.